0: I'm Alex.
1: I'm John.
2: And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Alex, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug?
0: Sure. Uh, I'm Alex Diener. I write video games and make Let's Play videos for the internet. A thing that I'd like to plug is a game I Let's Played a few years ago called The Royal Cosmonautical Society... It's a wonderful modern take on Lunar Lander that almost no one has played, and uh, it's available on Steam and extremely worth your money and attention, I think. Interesting. Uh, Can you briefly elaborate on that? How do they expand on
2: Lunar Lander?
0: So there are a bunch of different mechanics. Like there's one set of levels where you have a grappling hook, so you can pick up a crate and it has... It applies some physics to your ship there's another one where there's water on the planet you're on so going underwater it wants to push you upward so you have to thrust more downward to uh to overcome the the buoyancy of the ship yeah so basically just a bunch of different mechanics layered on top of this highly momentum bla- momentum based uh spaceship flight yeah it kind of sounds like a in the, in the
2: thrust lineage yeah exactly Cool.
1: I haven't I haven't played Lunar Lander in a long time. Is that the one where you are falling from the top of the screen and you have to fire engines to prevent yourself from crash landing? Yes. Got it. Okay. That does sound exciting.
2: Uh, and John, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug?
1: Yes, and yes. I'm John Battenville.
2: Are we really uh, doing this?
1: Uh, oh, oh, oh! I've done it. It's been done. It's been recorded. The identity of John Mystery is revealed. Oh,
2: the ARG is over, folks.
1: The, the ARG's been over. That it was over the last time. But we didn't it, we didn't, we it, never it,
2: found out who uncovered your identity. That part is still ongoing.
1: So I've gotten permission from that person, and now that person is the ARG. Right. And I have a clue to that person's identity. We have a
2: clue. Is that though? you're plugging? Yeah.
1: Well, I'm I'm going I'm I'm gonna plug a few things, Jim we're strap in we're 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 doing we're doing this but i will i will say that the person who identified me on the internet is an existing topic lord oh and lives in the same city as at least one other topic lord
2: <laughs> all right all right that narrows it down a bit
1: and maybe when they they when they hear this they'll they'll be like cool here's the next clue but we'll see
2: I'm, so I'm curious if they recognized your voice from the frog fraction's Kickstarter video hmm I mean that's possible but okay so you that wasn't what they said how they said they found you
1: no i I didn't ask i i said congratulate I, I actually i didn't say congratulations <laughs> i i said i initially said eyes looking sideways emoji um, <laughs> very <laughs> and, good and from there we we had a few additional interactions it was it's very nice. Um, anyway, try to figure out who that was. Good luck. But in terms of in terms of things, I would like to plug. Um, the one thing I'm going to plug is that I was in a musical uh, since the last time I recorded a podcast here, and that musical is *Blazeball the Musical: The Deaths of Sebastian Telephone*.
2: So we can just start on the first topic then, which is *Blazeball the Musical*.
1: Yeah. I'm a little nervous talking about this, in fact, because I think I, I feel almost like I'm a pretender in the space of baseball fandom. <laughs> um, just because, like, I feel like I know an awful lot about baseball at this point, to the point where I'm explaining to my spouse, like, hey, guess what Tillman Henderson did today? And all this other nonsense <laughs> stuff that, that is interesting to me and funny to me because I'm deeply immersed in it. But beyond that, I also know the person who runs the role play account for Tillman Henderson. <laughs> and so, like, other people are, are are into this in a way that I am envious and terrified both about.
2: So, let me be the first to assure you that it's okay to not be the most <laughs> obsessed person with a, with a particular fandom.
1: I, I appreciate that reassurance, Jim. I, I guess what I'll say is that um, the last time I was on this podcast, I talked briefly about how I was interested in baseball and how it was on a hiatus – but uh in in following all of these various twitter accounts related to the topic um i learned about a podcast called take me out to the Blall game and from there <laughs> it's a good name <laughs> it's a good name it's an excellent excellent name um and from there the the person who runs that said hey we're we're going to we're going to create a musical um around this because there's also there already exists and i should mention this as well that there is a band called the garages which is the band that says that they are the band of the the team, the Seattle Garages. And they write songs about baseball-related topics, often largely about players on the Seattle Garages team, such as Mike Townsend and Jalen Hot Dog Fingers and these characters. Uh, And the music is really, really good. If you haven't listened to the Garages, they're available on (laughs) blandcamp.com. and uh, there, it's to the point where they're putting out an album a week. It's just like, and it's all really good. It's all, I, I, I can't even, I can't even express how, how much it's become a part of my regular listening.
2: An album a week is pretty hardcore.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, there are, I mean, there's a lot of contributors for sure. And I think it, it keeps growing as more people are getting interested in submitting things. Um, I'm on the Discord for the label that is creating these things um and i keep thinking well maybe i'll try to put something else together so far still too nervous but um but anyway so the musician from the garages and the producer of this podcast and various other people came together and said yeah we we can do this and the plan was to do it much like a uh, game jam where there would be 72 hours to write it to record it and to edit it for the, for the the performance revolve and everything else. Um, and then the production team would kind of, you know, take over the other bits in the middle. And yeah, over the course of December, I saw this and I thought, wow, this, this sounds really exciting. Um, and I've always been adjacent to musical theater. I did a lot of backstage work in high school, which amounted to, if I was in the sound booth, I would end up watching a musical 30 times and learning every song in it and being able to, you know, Jump in in the middle if someone needed someone to be a placeholder while the actual actor was in the bathroom or something. Anyway, so I th- so I, I've been interested in being in musicals for a long time. So on a whim, I put together my audition and I was selected to be part of the ensemble. And um, I was I was really floored by the by the fact that I was selected for it. But yeah, I I started. Talking with all the people who were involved, and we recorded all these parts remotely, and it was a very amazing experience to work with really talented people and very committed people, uh, very kind people, and we created this incredible musical that's available. I'm sure we can we can provide links and such. One of my main reasons for it, hearing about how it was going to be created and, and hearing about the the process that's like, oh, this is going to be a very short-term, 72-hour thing. It reminded me, Jim, of conversations that you and I have, have had in the past, even on this podcast, about game jams and making creative works in very short periods of time and always wanting to – how I always wanted to be able to contribute something to something like that. And so, this was really in my wheelhouse in a way that I was – I'm sitting here getting emotional, even talking about it. Uh-huh. Um, it's um, it's very good. And I'm just in the ensemble. And um, you can hear me backing up a couple of songs. And you can hear me screaming about how Jessica Telephone looked at me as a super fan. But uh, but yes, I, I would encourage everyone to go listen to it and listen to music by the garages. And um, that's what I'm going to plug. And that's also my topic. <laughs> <laughs> Ta-da! You did it. I did it. Got through it. Oh, one other thing. Addendum. This is all also part of a piece of why I revealed my identity.
2: Right, because you wanted to talk about the work you were doing.
1: Exactly. And also because, you know, one of the things I, I realized is that being cagey about my identity was something that, you know, it was fun and I was kind of feeling like I was doing it out of an abundance of caution. But what I discovered is that by being myself and being comfortable and owning the things that I'm a part of and everything else, there's value in that too. And um, I am happy about all the connections that I've made and I want them to know who I am. So, yeah. So there you have it. Now
2: you can join the Discord.
1: Now I can join the Discord. It's fantastic. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi. Welcome, welcome to Topic Lords.
2: <laughs> the only place. On the internet, you can hear topics discussed.
1: And we're done. Good night. All right. I mean, I guess we could start another <laughs> short, topic. Sh- short show. Well, that's my topic. I'm, I am I relinquish the floor.
2: That's my topic and I'm sticking to it.
1: Unless anyone has a, has a comment or question.
0: Sounds pretty cool. <laughs>
2: cool. Yeah, it sounds like a really fun project. It sounds like yeah. you had an amazing time doing it with a bunch of other people. And I'm very curious to see the results. Although, I don't expect to understand it. Yeah, which might not be a problem for enjoying it. Do you know if there's like a ongoing? What I, what I want is not just like a primer for Blazeball because they don't actually want to get into it. I just want like a podcast for outsiders. Like here's the ten most interesting things that happened in Blazeball this week. Ooh,
1: um, well, I will be honest to say that unfortunately these days I don't listen to many podcasts. The one that I know about is, again, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, but the same person who made that, a person named Kimberly Dauber, she's created another podcast recently that's a narrative one, which is another plug. Anyway, I, I'm getting a, a bit far afield here, but I'm sure there are some out there. If I find some good ones, I will follow up again. But
2: Cool. It could also be like a, a website. That would be fine too. I could I could read it. I could exercise my eyeballs.
1: Yeah, the 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 one thing that I would recommend on that front is Cat Manning has created a pretty good explanation of some of the the bigger beats of it. Yeah. Um and some good analysis of like what makes various developments interesting and special. And I'm sure we can share some some links to those. Every week there's a new newsletter that I get about it from Cat Manning, so.
2: Uh, newsletter, the the podcast of old. <laughs>
1: yeah the podcast that comes into your email (laughs) and you have to read.
2: Uh, are we ready for another topic? Yes. Sure. Alex, your topic is keeping the spirit
0: of invention alive. All right. So, um, a commonly shared sentiment that I've run into as a programmer from other programmers is not to reinvent the wheel and I know this often has validity, but I want to talk about why it might be good to reinvent the wheel sometimes. I've found personally that if I invent something myself, it helps me understand how to use someone else's implementation of that same thing much more deeply in a way that I couldn't otherwise just coming at it from the outside, trying to understand their process without having done it myself. And I've found that the knowledge that I've gained by working through the full process of something has pretty much stuck with me for uh, the rest of my life, up to this point at least. I hope it keeps doing that. And another thing is that every complex invention comes with the baggage of its inventor. And since everyone's needs are unique, an invention that is not your own might not actually be a perfect fit. And I think new inventions are still very important and are often inspired by reinventing something that already exists. So going through the process and learning what led to the conclusions that exist can end up leading to new things. Yeah. So the don't reinvent the wheel advice I feel stifles this sometimes.
1: Do you have a specific example of something that you would apply this to? Because I, I think I, I agree with you, and I'm I'm thinking of a couple of Things that kind of apply in 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 what I'm doing with my my job right now. Yeah, but I would love to hear about some some concrete examples from your perspective about
0: this. Yeah, so one example that I would give is that uh, I'm I'm doing some work in 3D, and instead of just using Unity or Unreal with all the baggage that those two come with—technical, uh, legal, future-proofing, all that other stuff—I've uh, written my own 3D renderer, and. This is something that's fairly complex, and I think it is important to to keep on inventing in this space because I've done some things with my renderer that I think would be difficult to do in these two others, or at least difficult to do as efficiently or as idiomatically as I do them for my workflow. So that's one example. Another thing is I'm creating for the game I'm working on now a non-destructive audio synthesizer and processor. That integrates into my make file I don't know if anything exactly like this exists, but the idea for that is that I would have a configuration file that specifies how to combine basically a, a bunch of waveforms together to produce a sound effect, and that configuration file is the only artifact that I need to actually uh, store to describe what the audio output is i don't store the actual the actual sound file; I can just generate it from that
2: ah. And that it goes into the build as a generated mm-hmm. wave file that's interesting, yeah, yeah, I think like the most tool chains nowadays would just put all the source wave files in the in the output build and mix it in real time,
0: yep, and there's definitely merit to doing that again, I just think like multiple approaches the the more different the more people really thinking through these problems uh uh the better, so yeah, reinventing things is uh is great. And you should do it when you can get away with it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, the other advantage, and and this might, this advantage probably goes away when you're not a solo programmer, but it's just way more fun to do it yourself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I would much rather write the, the simplest version of a thing that I need than to spend even half the time, like, butting my head up against an API that's poorly documented and I don't understand it. And that also has the advantage that you can, if it breaks, you can fix it yourself instead of sending a support ticket out, you know? Yep. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's a big deal. It's, it, it makes a big difference in my personal, like, how much I enjoy my work, which makes a big difference in how much work I get done.
1: Something that occurs to me about the idea of not wanting to reinvent the wheel seems to be the, the sort of thing where if there are a lot of standard tools that do a lot of things that let people create at scale then if it's a like a very broad solution that may not do things very efficiently or something like that like y- you may be able to get away with it without having to go back and go back to first principles on on the creation of everything but on the other hand it reminds me of when i was learning about computer programming at all and i had to implement a linked list. And everyone in the world has done that at some point, presumably. Um, and so, mine was not going to be some new and special thing. But seeing how it was working allowed me to then have... It's almost like I had that step in in mind and in recent memory and then could use that to do additional things. So, it's almost like if you do start from the very beginning on something, then you have to come up with a creative way to get to the result that you want. And you may find a way that, like you said, for your workflow ends up being the optimal way of doing it for what you're trying to create, even if it's not gonna be the thing for you know other people who might be trying to do something similar and don't have the wherewithal to um, start from the beginning.
0: Yep. Yeah, And once you've uh, implemented a linked list once, anytime you see a linked list later, you know exactly what it is and pretty much how it works on the inside.
1: Exactly. I am perpetually in a state of feeling like I'm an imposter when it comes to programming. So forgive me if I go a little a little by the wayside here on this. But um, that was one of the things that, that object-oriented programming was really hammered into my mind. Again, going talking about when I was like first learning about programming, it's like, create this thing that does this very simple task that you need it to do, and then you always have that. And then create another thing that uses that very simple thing, and now you have something that does something slightly more complex, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until you have these very, very complex structures that are all kind of interconnected, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just reminding myself if I actually know, if I know about programming, what's your job? I'm a data scientist. (laughs) (laughs) I always feel like I'm about to forget everything I know, but just look at something wrong. Anyway.
0: Yeah. I suppose actually that leads me to another another thing that I kind of reinvented and got some benefit from. So I write all of my code that I can get away with in C, Mm. but I have my own object orientation layer in C that I can use without just going straight to C++. It's very lightweight. There's not a whole lot to it, but it does exactly just the set of things that I need. And I can stick with a simpler language that um, perhaps has better compile times. And yeah, it just, it fits my exact needs perfectly uh, rather than having to compromise and use a completely different language just for one or two things in it.
1: Interesting. So you have a very small underlying bit in C hmm That that does the heavy lifting for all the other things that you will need to do, which you can then yeah, do in C. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah. Right now, the big project that I have been working on at work involves passing variously aggregated files back and forth between R and Python scripts, because there are some things that R can much more easily parallelize compared to Python, which seems to have trouble with that. It's funny because right now everything works and it works the way that we would expect it to and it and then like you can you can start it and press the button on it and it generates the thing that you want after some time. but I'm always thinking about now that I have this thing that does all of this stuff, what would it take to go back and make it so that it is efficient
0: <laughs> right
1: because Right now, it's just, it's really held together with rubber bands and, and sticky tack and stuff. But it works. And yeah. Sometimes that's what matters. Maybe that's we, enough for yeah.
0: now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I just kind of leaned into this as uh, my ideology for programming, uh, ignored the advice I was given by people who tell me don't reinvent stuff. And I feel like I've just seen huge returns in that investment. Like the code that I'm writing now just feels like the most expressive code that I've ever written uh, using a whole bunch of systems that I've invented really just for myself. And yeah, it's just, I've, I've seen uh, huge benefits from doing this and I think it's worth thinking about. It doesn't fit every situation. Uh, So yeah, really the lesson here, I guess, is to do the thing that fits your situation best. But sometimes what fits your situation best might be just to invent something from scratch, even if it already exists somewhere else.
2: The other thing that I, I don't know if this is a a fair, a fair thing to point out or not, but like the poster child of don't reinvent the wheel is NPM.
0: NPM. I should know what that is.
2: Uh, Let me, let me look that up to make sure I got it right. The package manager. What does it stand for? Node package manager. Every package package in npm that you might pull in is going to pull in a dozen more which are then each of then going to pull in a dozen more to the point where like if you rely on anything in npm you're relying on the work of a thousand people mm-hmm. and although any one of those packages can be broken in some way any one of those packages could be updated at any time and breaks break and break something uh-huh. like there was a um uh, what was it? The guy who wrote the module called left pad, which is left just,
0: pad. I was wondering if that was going to come up, which is yeah. just
2: a function that adds spaces to the beginning of a string. Like that guy, I think in protest, he removed his package from the repository and broke thousands of other packages as a result to the point where like Legend. NPM decided, we're just going to like recreate this package and break our own rules. Like the, it was a, big disaster. And like, e- even if something like that doesn't happen, you're still relying on like a teetering stack of dependencies, a thousand miles high to run <laughs> your commercial website. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Left definitely a fascinating story. Just like how far these things can go and how widespread something like that can get. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm perpetually living in fear of this, uh, frightening structure that i've created is because it has so many interlocking parts that could could be updated any given time if i get the new version and it does something slightly differently yeah then yeah i'm whew, whew, not even gonna no not tonight it's the weekend not tonight
2: <laughs> it's time to take a break from that stuff whew. uh you we ready for another topic yep sure Uh, My topic is, a couple of weeks ago, I made turkey burgers with shredded zucchini mixed in and it was great. Today, I mixed in shredded cheese too and now I'm convinced I could mix in anything and it would be great. I highly recommend putting shredded zucchini in your your turkey burgers because they tend to come out kind of dry and they would add some moisture. But what I'm really excited about is the idea of like making Rice Krispie Treat burgers or Mm. (laughs) ridiculous things like that.
1: (laughs) So your your theory here is you've added two things to turkey burgers. Uh-huh. And both of them have
2: Or what's the what's the property where like if you prove yeah. A is true and A plus 1 is true
1: is that induction?
2: I I think so. I don't know. Anyway, that's I've I've proven that you can add anything to turkey and you proved it for the singular
1: case and the and the general case. So the the counterpoint to this is is turkey by itself so delicious that anything that it is that is added to it cannot mess it up.
2: <laughs> uh, I don't think so because like a turkey burger by itself like is actually kind of bland. It doesn't have its own like like it's not as fatty and this is why people cook with it because it's healthier, you know. It's not as fatty as a beef burger.
1: Okay. I guess my question is with the zucchini, and I will preface this by saying that I'm a little concerned about the way that cooked vegetables are going to work if they are just like totally mixed in with cooked meat. Uh-huh. Um if they're if they're small, in particular like mixing in diced onions with meat to me is something that I, I don't think I can deal with yeah so, like, well,
2: so you, you do you not like raw onion
1: I don't like raw onion generally um, I, I tolerate onion as as an aromatic thing but not as a food thing
2: yeah I definitely I get what you're saying like the uh, uh, if you put diced onions in a meatloaf they'll come out pretty much intact
1: yeah no thanks
2: but zucchini is like I, I mean ha- have you had zucchini
1: I'm I mean I'm sure I have I can't think of when I've had it recently but
2: it's not onion
1: Right. It's, but, uh, it's, but it's also, it's very fibrous, right? Um, or am I misremembering?
2: Maybe it is a little bit more, like a, a slightly fi- more fibrous cucumber.
1: Yeah. Okay. I was thinking somewhere between like a squash, like a yellow squash.
2: It's a squash. It's definitely in the squash family. Right? Yeah. Okay.
1: But you shred it, huh?
2: Yeah. Hmm.
1: What, what is the, like what quality... Because I'm thinking about what happens with the taste for one, but then also what happens to the texture. Like, how does the how does the texture hold up? It definitely a-
2: becomes a unified. It feels like a unified thing, like really? a homogenous mass that you've created. Wow, the the two textures blend, then flavors blend together, and like that might just be because you know it's like particle board at that point, and like you're <laughs> you're tasting. They're both things are ne- right next to each other on your tongue, and your tongue is not that. Precise in tasting like every single pixel of food.
1: <laughs> but the, I mean, the cheese I can get down with, I'm just I, – I hear shredded zucchini and I'm just like immediately suspicious.
2: You know what I recommend you do, John, at some point? You take – just get a zucchini, cut it in half lengthwise and then cut it into little half moons mm. uh, and just roast it in the oven with some olive oil.
1: Man, I feel like I've done that. We've had a green squash – uh-huh. Which I think I again, I'm not knowing which one is a zucchini, but I'm it's like long and cucumber-like. Yeah, Do, is one end discernibly different from the other? Yeah, it's got a little um, like a nubbin or something, right?
2: Yeah, it like it's kind of kind of like in the same family as the stem of a pumpkin, I guess it's the stem.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yes, I've had zucchini and I thought it was just fine, if not a little. Like I think I had to put a bunch of stuff on it to to make it yummy.
2: Yeah, olive oil, salt, and pepper. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing it's as anything else. <laughs> I bet that works with ice cream too.
1: There you go. Shredded zucchini on your turkey burger ice cream. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> just put it all together. <laughs>
2: have you seen the, um, I think it's called Sweet Sunday Ramen? No. Hang on a second. I have to, I'm just going to paste this into chat.
1: Peppermint. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: So, first of all, he's making the packaged ramen in the microwave, which... Suspect. (laughs) It's already trashy enough, guy.
1: (laughs) So, I'm going to read the ingredients here just so we can collectively react. Yep. Food coloring, Uh sprinkles, Uh nut topping or any crushed nut, marshmallows, Magic shell chocolate, a banana, okay, it's starting to get weird, um, homemade fudge, Pop-Tart.
2: You can't use store-bought fudge, that would be unacceptable.
1: <laughs> homemade, <laughs> must be homemade, and Pop-Tart, I think is just, that's just being funny at that
0: point. Yeah, that's going in a weird direction at this point. <laughs>
1: but then, But then the peppermint flavoring, so, okay, in addition to homemade fudge, also hot fudge.
2: Yeah, uh-huh.
1: Oh, so maybe homemade fudge is like the the confection that is like a brick.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. Okay. And it's not really homemade. It's just, is. you call it that, like indie rock.
1: <laughs> it's made by someone in something that could be home. Anyway, caramel. S- something lives there. Something lives there. Caramel, vanilla pudding, frosting, not pictured, and whipped cream, not pictured.
2: Yeah. And so, what's funny to me about this list of ingredients is that he's very upfront about like, here's everything in here. And yet, people are like, if you read through this thread, people are just like screaming in reaction to every new thing he adds. (laughs) Like, oh, this is unacceptable.
1: The problem is, you know, first bite being with the eye. This is not a a food dish that looks like something – Tasty.
2: Yeah, that really is the fundamental problem. Is that it's kind of a brown sludge at the end. Yeah, but you just cover it with more whipped cream, and that would solve it. Ah,
0: man. I honestly just cannot tell if this would be any good or not. I would have to try it.
1: I think it would be very sugary. It would be very sweet, and at that Mm -hmm. point, I don't know if the flavor of it is really what your what your brain is going to even be able to detect like it's just going to be overwhelmed with the the sweetness and maybe like the offensive peppermint with all with any of this stuff i think is like maybe peppermint with chocolate excellent but peppermint with a pop tart and banana like like the biggest crime is that there's no art to it (laughs) right you know like i can see a situation in which you could make ramen into some sort of a sweet thing that is kind of a weird sweet but is also like, okay, I wouldn't have this every time but I wanted something that satisfied a sweet craving and rather than just eating marshmallows directly, I'm putting it on this carb that I've cooked and is noodly. and yeah. now now there's some, yeah. something sweet, about sweet it. Sweet
2: and right? savory go great together.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, now I'm
2: <sighs> – I, I wonder how much of the problem is the food coloring. Like, <laughs> like would this be more palatable looking if it weren't dyed blue?
1: <laughs> I mean, and what's funny is that that's the first thing that happens. <laughs> it's yeah. like there's fresh ramen and now into it goes blue food coloring and then also peppermint for some reason. <laughs> so, looking at this, it's, it's late at night. We've been talking for a little while, but like there's a part of me that is talking myself into making some kind of a less terrifying confection of ramen just, just to prove that it can be done in a way that is, that is not just a, again, a food crime.
2: I, I think I would be happy if someone did that, but I would be <laughs> like, what I want,
1: but it will not be me
2: <laughs> is for someone to adapt to this thread into a YouTube channel. Where I, I'm sure there's like a – here's an incredibly gross, complicated confection that we made, a YouTube channel out there. But does it have like an MST3K silhouettes heckling the whole time? Because <laughs> that's that's really, I think, what puts, puts it over the edge.
1: Just some good-natured ribbing and confusion. Just like, yeah, I, I, I would like to see something like that. just. <laughs> We're going to link this, right?
2: Oh, yeah. This is going in the show notes.
1: <laughs> the animated Captain Hook <laughs>
2: image. Do, do Just, you remember, like, what were we talking about that led to this?
1: Oh, no. We were talking about how we could ruin a turkey burger. Oh, and right. That yes. there might not be a way.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, my concern with um, Risk Crispy Treat burgers is that the marshmallow might not survive the process. It might scorch in the pan.
1: Get broken down to its base elements.
2: Yeah, I suddenly there'll be a congealed horse horse hoof in the pan. <laughs> <laughs> is,
1: that, <laughs> is that something where you could cook the burger partially in some other context and then like <laughs> inject yeah. marshmallow fluff into it at the final stage?
2: Right. Rice Krispie Cheats, you don't bake that. You um I think you you heat the marshmallow so that it's gooey, and then you just mix it with the rice krispies and the butter. You also have to heat the butter, uh, and then you just let it set. So obviously, what you have to do is uh, make ground turkey like crumbles. Oh
1: no. It's a loose meat, crispy marshmallow burger.
2: Yes, yeah, and I guess oh no, I, I like I, you don't even have to form patties; just make like a sheet yeah. pan of it. What have you oh done?
1: <laughs> I'm horrified because that sounds ridiculous, but I'm also horrified because it's so crazy it just might work.
2: Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, the the reason I'm not like saying I'm definitely going to do this is that the proportions would probably demand a lot of like marshmallows and Rice Krispies are super cheap. Uh, turkey meat is less cheap. <laughs> Like, yeah. and the por- proportions would probably demand a lot of it.
1: What if you use the same quantity of? I'm imagining, like, rather, sorry, rather than doing a a sheet loaf of it, having a bunch of petri dishes essentially, where you just have a very thin layer of it, so it almost is still like a patty, still round, but oh yeah, um, it's almost like you'd use one marshmallow per per burger,
2: right? Like you wouldn't yeah. need
1: wouldn't need a ton, right? Just enough to kind of hold it together. <laughs> after <laughs> you've done this thing.
2: That's the sensible way to do it. That's the sensible, ethical way to make horrible race, cook burgers. I mean,
1: I mean, Jim, now I'm looking forward to the – So, for those of you who don't know, Jim and I have been just occasionally sending back and forth pictures of the food that we've cooked lately. And it's – When I see the food that Jim's cooked, I'm usually very excited and I'm, I'm – <laughs> <laughs> now I'm looking forward to the moment. One of these days, I'm going to get a photo and I'm and I'm just going to oh, go, what's Jim cooked up today? And I, I'm going to be horrified and delighted.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't think I'll be able to get my wife to eat this is the problem.
1: Oh, no, not at all. No. <laughs> Jim, nor should your child eat this. <laughs> <laughs> don't do this to him.
2: Yeah, no, I have to like wrap it in wax paper and sell it at the bake sale. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. When you need to, you know, do fundraising for school.
2: (laughs) My next Kickstarter. (laughs) Are we ready for another topic?
1: Yes, please.
2: Uh, This is a write-in. Miko asks, do you know about as slow as possible or should I put it in the topic bucket? Uh, I did know about as slow as possible and I'm excited to talk about it. This is a piece by John Cage where the entire conceit is that you're supposed to play it as you know i think the word is actually slowly john cage as slowly as possible is so you got the name wrong write it in in the comments if uh if you think i'm being too mean to john cage
1: i mean what's he going to do
2: yeah it's a good point he can't sue me
1: you are being sued by the estate of john cage
2: <laughs> the, the entire conceit is that you're supposed to play this piece as slowly as possible Uh, And there's like, for example, a project um, – let me actually look this up. There's a project in Halberstadt, Germany that began in 2001 and is scheduled to finish playing the piece in 2640. Jeez. (laughs) So, pretty slow.
1: That's – is that as slow as possible? Slowly as possible.
2: No, it could also they could take 1 second longer and it would be even slower.
1: I know a little about John Cage and he also who wrote 4 minutes 33 seconds which is a silent piece that is performed in front of a piano or or however you want to do it, but it's supposed to be played for that long and it's just silence the whole time and the idea is that the audience changes the how the the performance sounds at any given thing and that's that's the experience of it so it's very very much like experiential music projects right yeah so I, I like the idea that many of the things he's created were created with an instruction manual that says this is how you kind of remix this and make it something interesting like yeah like the, like the the music itself is not the point it's the you know, all all the things around joking
2: around. Like this is something that I've, I've talked about on previous episodes and I'm still, I'm still, I've been grappling, grappling with it all my life. Like, what is the difference between John Cage, the serious artist who is clearly just trolling and joking around with most of his pieces? Like you, you have to imagine like this, he's laughing because this is a hilarious idea. I can't believe I got away with this. And like, Basically, all of my artist friends who do the same thing and nobody gives a shit. Or it's at the, at the very least, it's considered lowbrow art. Like, what is the difference?
1: I feel like part of the difference, at least, is that – I don't know if you were asking so that I could give you an answer. But
2: I would love to hear your answer.
1: So, okay. To preface this, I took a class in my undergrad years about um, sound and culture broadly. And there we had a, a a bit of the time when we studied about John Cage in particular. And I have forgotten quite a bit of that class, but what I what I do remember is that there were other things that he was doing before he did all the avant-garde stuff that were significant. And if I'm trying to look up his earlier works that might have had something to do with that, but but that was my my understanding that he, that he was like experimenting with things in a way that was like influential on all these other people to the point where even if he himself was doing some stuff that was off the wall all these people who he influenced were like oh yeah john cage is an influence of me and therefore what's john cage doing oh he's doing he's doing random nonsense
2: so is this like how picasso could actually paint a horse that looked like a horse and <laughs> did so for a while proving that he was a good artist and then did all the other shit.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's like in order to be taken seriously, when you break the rules, you first have to know the rules and then you can screw around with them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, cause like the things that I remember is he, he was doing things related to um, like prepared pianos and stuff like that. And tape loops and other, other stuff that was just playing with these different concepts and again you know early 20th century when this was going on like there maybe wasn't a lot that had been allowed in that sort of that sort of space right by any by anyone who was serious so the the one project of his that i really like a lot and i try to recommend to anyone when the topic comes up is something called indeterminacy are you familiar with this this uh thing
2: uh not by that name <laughs>
1: The premise is I understood it, and I may get some of the details wrong, he would record these a series of one-minute bits of audio during which he would speak and tell some anecdote that would fill up the one-minute space. And occasionally, there would be other audio recordings that were played with him speaking about this topic. And sometimes the audio would be so loud that you could barely hear what he was saying at all. Sometimes there was almost nothing else at all that you could hear alongside it. Sometimes it would kind of cut in and out. So, you'd hear him speaking and then you wouldn't for a time. And the idea was that it would be like observing someone across the street as cars are passing by. So, sometimes you would hear what he's saying and sometimes it would get obscured by this thing and and whatever. Anyway, I I just find it really interesting I, if there's an opportunity, I don't, I don't know where it's available to listen, but like now that I'm talking about it, I want to listen to it again.
2: <laughs>
1: but in terms of like something that's by John Cage that's, that's accessible to humans, um, which I think a lot of his work just isn't, <laughs> John Cage rant completes.
2: <laughs> Before we move on to the next topic, I want to discuss a YouTube video I saw called As Slow As Possible, As Fast As Possible. <laughs> <laughs> Which,
1: yes, please.
2: Let me see if I can. So let me see if it's still up. Actually, it plays the notes of the cage piece as slow as possible, as quickly as possible, such that every note can be recognized as being at the correct frequency. So it plays a single cycle of that waveform. Oh. Mm,
1: how long are these waveforms?
2: So we're talking like maybe a 50th of a second.
1: Oh, (laughs) dang.
2: Uh, Yeah, so the whole piece is 36 seconds long. I'll paste that into Skype chat as well.
0: I want to experience this. That sure was some noise.
2: <laughs> uh so there's a description in wow. the um I, I, I slightly misdescribed it. Uh the description is that they took the n- shortest note uh and used that uh the complete wave wave cycle of that note as the um the base unit of the, the tempo and built the mm. rest of the song around that and so that that one note is just barely long enough to recognize it as that note.
1: (laughs) This, this was exactly what I was hoping for. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't think I've ever been told, Hey, there's this, there's this video. That's this thing. And it, it is exactly what I was, what I was, what I was hoping to hear. Didn't know what I was expecting, but I was, I was thoroughly satisfied by what I got. Yeah, John Cage, legendary music troll.
2: Are we ready for another topic? Sure. Yep. Alex, your topic
0: is existing completely outside the school system. So as background for this, um, I was unschooled as a child. Back then it was called being homeschooled, but it was a little bit different from that. And I did not go to, I don't have any kind of college education or anything. And sometimes I have to actively remember that this makes me unusual. So, so, so wait, so hang on a second. So you say unschooled and they called it homeschooling, but right. I should elaborate on this. Yes. So homeschooling, as I understand it, is the idea of Doing structured teaching at home, basically an equivalent of what you would get at a, a school that you actually go to.
1: Is that like, Being, like, like with, a, with a parent or someone? Yeah, okay,
0: yeah okay. exactly. Yep. Being unschooled, uh, in contrast, is more just allowing a child to do what whatever takes their interest and offering them some support, some suggestions maybe, but not not really imposing a rigid structure on them. Right and i think this was a very positive thing for me but again i have to remember that not everyone is like this and it's it's sometimes just hard from this perspective to to put that into context against what the norm normal experience is right and i happened upon a ted talk recently from peter gray this and had some some insights that that just helped me understand my way of thinking in contrast with uh, perhaps a more common one one of his points Was that from his research, unschooled children don't tend to distinguish between two phases of learning to become something, some big goal in the future and doing it. The example he gave was that there was a child who liked to bake things and uh, she was asked, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Her answer was, I'd like to be a baker, but I am already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And what was interesting to me about that was just, I had definitely very much internalized that idea to to the point that it was just a completely foreign concept to me to distinguish these things. Right. To personally relate this to um, something I've experienced. Uh, I've been doing some form of programming since I was about six years old. I was tinkering around with HyperCard and an old Mac Plus. Yeah. So thinking about that experience, that's pretty much... I see that as the exact same activity that I do today. I just have more experience and context behind what I do. It's, it just, it isn't really different to me.
2: Yeah. I I definitely like, I kind of bounced off of school. Like I, I did the whole thing, did all the 12 grades and then a little bit of college and didn't feel like I, I don't know. I I say, I didn't feel like I got much out of it. I certainly would have gotten more out of it if I had taken it more seriously, Mm -hmm. but it was not, the way I wanted to learn how to do things and I feel like I got a lot more in my life, including career-wise, out of the things I did at home, like independent study. And I definitely I I I will approach a new, you know, a new hobby or a new skill by just starting to do it. That's just how I learn. And I wonder like if there's a correlation between the people who liked the structure of school and the people who don't who don't think that way,
0: right? Hmm.
1: It's interesting to hear about this because um, how do I want to approach it? There's there, there's many different angles from which I can approach this. So I was raised for the early year, the very early years of my life. I was living on a farm in rural Oregon, and while we were on that farm, my older sisters who were of like middle school age, maybe elementary to middle school age, they were not going to a school. There was a community school where, you know, the adults would kind of go and talk about topics related to philosophy and things like that. And the kids would be around and be able to do some activities. And there may be some, you know, an adult to kind of make sure they're not getting into trouble, but it was largely, at home, we had a set of encyclopedias, and we had a forest, and so we could go and look and and, and do a lot of a lot of things just locally. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so in my family, there was this kind of this mythologization of the idea of homeschooling, which what was the term you used? Unschooled? Yes, we said homeschooling, but it was really that. It was really unschooling. And that kind of persisted. So, of of my older sisters, one of them is very insistent that being not within the school system was the best thing that ever happened to her in her life. But she also later ended up going to university though and and from there, you know, and she's a very interesting person with a lot of interest, a lot of, you know, very self-taught, self-driven on a lot of things. Another of my sisters, when we moved, she started attending high school and she is – you know also doing very well. she went to college for a little while and then quit i as soon as i was of school age was in school forever but because i knew that my older sisters had these experiences i was always thinking oh what if i what if i don't want to be in school and 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 so i was always a, a, a little you know thinking i could i could quit and run off and join the circus basically but uh, but i never did but and and with that also i'll say there was never any doubt that After I finished high school, I would go on to college and then from, you know, and then I would get a job after college. Like it was, it was, it was very, by the time I was of the, of the age when, when I would be going to school, my, my family had kind of gotten out of that, that uh, mode that they were in in rural Oregon. And we had also moved to a much more suburban type area. However, what I was going to say was the closest thing that I can relate to that experience of kind of self-guided learning is related to music. Because my parents were both musicians, and my older sisters are also musicians. And when I was young, we had a lot of instruments about the house. So we had a piano, we had various guitars, and it became the sort of thing that when I was old enough to actually do anything, I could go and and bang around on the piano and kind of figure out how to play things and things like that. I learned how to play guitar, entirely self-taught. I I wouldn't say I'm like virtuosic or anything, but I can I can play songs and I can you know know a little bit about these things. And so it's it's just interesting. Like f- from my perspective, that is the closest thing that I can relate to that experience of being unschooled, where it's just no one's telling you to go do it; they're just providing the opportunity for you to do something with it. Yeah, certainly. I guess I'm I'm saying that um, I think that is an interesting approach to things and. My question for you is, how do you feel that that has um, do you ever feel like the society we live in is not supportive or actively hostile to unschooled people, or do you feel like it is secretly very supportive and and we don't know about it generally
0: yeah, I feel like I get what you're you're getting at
1: um i i guess I guess I'm saying do you feel like your experience is different from other people in a way that you would say is positive or has been challenging or.
0: Yeah. So it's uh, it's some of both. Um, so I think w- one thing I can point at, I, I had a, <laughs> so f- fun little anecdote. This will probably sound funny to, uh, if you've been through the school system, but I had never, I've never said the pledge of allegiance and I had never seen it recited <laughs> until I was in my oh, thirties. Wow. The very first time I saw it was just absolutely shocking. Like, <laughs> I, I was watching, let's see, how did this come up? I was watching like a, a live stream of a, t- uh, a town council meeting or something. I don't know. Anyways, so everybody in the room just stood up, did, did a pose, turned toward the flag in the room and recited these words. And this was just, I was just looking at this horrified, like, what is this? Is this some kind of brainwashing? Like, why are they doing this? <laughs> yes, this is it so is. Weird. Uh, so you yeah. know. Just yep. FYI. So I'm happy that I was never uh made to say that. I think that's pr- maybe the, the clearest example I can point out that is just like I really did not feel like I fit in with the rest of the society there. It's just like if this is the normal, then like
2: I've definitely heard from multiple people the opinion that, that like you should send your kid at least to high school because people who are homeschooled are just weirdos. Like they, they don't they don't get socialized with the rest of the teenagers so they don't get the all their little weird tics that they do that beaten out of them by mm-hmm. by the assholes around them but like is that really what you want to do to your kid I definitely strongly believe that like everybody in America who has who's like diagnosed with PTSD actually has it twice because they all went to middle school <laughs>
1: I mean, yeah. that, yeah, having been to middle school, I would say that's that's pretty true. Yeah. Um, and I went to middle school at two different schools because I moved in the middle of middle school, which is even worse because then you get not only the feeling of not knowing what you're doing, being the youngest person in your middle school, which at that age range, there's going to be a, a bunch of people in different stages of development that it's going to be very awkward. But then also, oh, and I get to do my my last year of middle school, not knowing anyone. So
2: (laughs) Yeah, good. Perfect.
1: It was excellent. Real, real cool experience. Well, the other thing I was going to say though, like with my, my older sister who ended up going to college, yeah, like again, having not been to middle school or high school or anything else, she's still one of the most outgoing and vivacious people who I know and-
2: Well, yeah. Like if you are homeschooled and you're not surrounded by people all the time, you have to learn how to make friends. Are you, I guess, or you don't, or you just don't do it. But like, it's a much stronger incentive to like learn to actually go out there and, and, and socialize with people.
0: Yeah. That's probably, I think there's a lot of, uh, individual variation there. Like Mm -hmm. for some people, that's the right thing for some, it, it might not be so much. I know that when I had my first job that that was kind of my experience with the real world. Like my, my first job at a, uh, my first office job was, was kind of a surrogate school experience for me (laughs) as far as socializing goes. Yeah. And I know I, I certainly looking back at it now, I can see I had a lot of weird habits and ticks that I had to work through in that environment. So maybe I was a little behind on that, but I feel like I came out of that just fine. You know, I, it happens maybe a little later than it would for other people, but yeah, yeah.
1: I, and like, I, I kind of wonder too, if being in a situation where you're learning uh, about that kind of thing as someone who's a little older, perhaps at a, at an older stage of development, like the emotional intelligence is there in a way that maybe it wouldn't be in younger times. And so then it's like, you're able to kind of view more objectively, like, oh, I see, this thing is in conflict with the expectations of this organization that i'm in therefore i can i can approach it in this way rather than rather than being like pissed off that everyone is trying to change you in some way right
0: yep yep yeah that definitely sounds like it describes my experience of that job like there were there were times and i had to actively just kind of take take a step back and say you know what i have this habit that's probably not doing well for me with you know uh, making these people like me anymore so what if i just changed that that's probably a good idea wouldn't hurt me and i'd have a better time and everybody around me would too
1: and i think that's fantastic because for me to reach a similar conclusion about my work environment required just you know a few years of therapy to kind of get through and build that that emotional intelligence that i needed in order to be able to uh, address issues that might have been making people Thing, things about the way that I was conducting my work that that were that I felt were holding me back that were related to interpersonal connections and stuff. Yep. So,
0: What's scary to me about things like this is they're invisible until you can look back and see that they were a problem. Mm-hmm. So I'm probably doing so many things now that in five or ten years I'll look back and see, boy, what the heck was I doing then? I Why didn't I figure this out?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I certainly... Look back at who I was a few years ago. Even now, and just like, ah, oh, that guy, what a jerk. Yep. <laughs> but he's better now.
0: Yeah, so. exactly. That's just an indication you're you're always learning things. You've
1: grown, That's- right? Yep. So
0: yep.
2: Yeah, I feel bad because I I kind of always intended to send my kids, or, the, or rather to homeschool my kids, but now that I have a kid around all day every day, like <laughs> I'm really looking forward to when I can b- send this kid back to daycare. Mm-hmm.
1: Just give him a set of encyclopedia.
2: Well, yeah, at, at a certain point, like I, I fully expect he'll be, you know, able to, to make his own fun. And, and honestly, like I'm for the most part, totally fine for him just learning what he finds interesting. Cause it worked well for me, but that, uh, that government mandated or the government funded daycare is, uh, it's, uh, it's real appealing sometimes.
0: My sister has two kids and one of them has a temperament that just needs attention all the time and lots of, just lots of active, uh, attention, I guess the, the other one, um, is just totally happy to do his own thing. And it's interesting that they came out so different. She said that was clear right when they were born. Uh, <laughs> so some kids will do well with that. Some kids won't. And, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it was just, were there any external factors that contributed to that? Or was it just
0: yeah, didn't mostly seem to be. just how they were, how they were made?
2: Yeah. It's, it's interesting how much you can tell, uh, of what a child's, what a child's personality is going to be when they grow up. Like just mm-hmm. right yeah. away. Uh, do we, uh, you, you two are the ones who need to go to sleep. Do you want to do one more topic?
1: I can do one more topic.
2: Yeah. I'm not falling over yet. Okay. Uh, John, your topic is glasses, getting them for the first time as an adult versus when you were younger.
1: So this is a topic from a year or so ago?
2: Yeah, this has been on in the bucket for a long time. It's
1: been in the bucket because shortly before I submitted this, I got glasses for the first time as a grown adult person. Um and I I had never had any kind of glasses before as far as I knew my vision was fine um and it was only when I started working at a job where I was looking at two computer screens all day and I was starting to notice that it was hard to focus on some of those screens that I wondered if maybe it was time to get get an eye test I think my previous eye test had been like 10 years before and so I got glasses for the first time and I'm really interested in hearing the perspectives of anyone who has had glasses for a longer time, like perhaps since some adolescence or thereabouts, because my experience was first, I felt like my eyes were getting pulled in every direction and also that the floor was coming up at me at weird angles <laughs> because I have an astigmatism in one eye and, and I had didn't know about it but then I got this correction for it and and then it became very obvious that something is really weird and off and I just remember for the first month or so when I when I first got them I was just so grumpy all the time oh. and um but then it just then it was fine and suddenly everything looked the way it should and I could see better and um
2: like did it give you a headache or
1: Yeah, I like when I first got the prescription, I was getting headaches. And my perspective was really off. Because in one eye, I was I'm kind of farsighted, I think. And I have an astigmatism. And so they had to do this like double correction that literally caused... The things in my right eye or the right field side of my field of vision to look farther away than the things on my left side of my field of vision. Wow! I I ended up going back to the eye doctor just to say like, is this normal? Like, <laughs> I I am I am I going to feel like this forever? But they said no. It's that's that's how it's supposed to be. Like that's it's just that's what getting glasses is like. And then of course it was fine. And I I actually just recently got a new prescription. And these are a little bit different too, but they were much easier immediately to wear than those first ones. So, I don't know if it's a, a matter of my my previous prescription was a little goofy compared to what it should have been or or if I'm just using... I have this, um, I think it's called an Izen lens, which sounds like a brand name of some, some kind, but it's kind of like a progressive lens where in the middle of my field of vision... I can see things at a distance of a few feet, but then if I look away from the middle to either the side or the bottom, then I can see things up close in more detail. So kind of like I guess what a progressive lens is supposed to do or like a bifocal type thing. But anyway, I'm I'm just my my question to to any of you who have had glasses for longer is what was your experience like and do you do you have any weirdness that happens when you get new prescriptions? Any tips for those of us who are struggling?
0: Uh Alex, when did you get yours? Yeah, so I got mine. Uh, it was I it was also in adulthood. I think I was about 24, 25.
2: Damn. Okay, that's all three of us. So this is this topic is just a bust.
1: <laughs> but even so I mean, I'm I'm like, that's not that old. <laughs> 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 so I'm well, do you I mean, I guess my question is, do you remember it? Do you remember? Was it a traumatic experience? Was it weird? And how is it now?
0: Yes. Yeah, so my experience was a little different from that. I was so I'm nearsighted and I was very stubborn about it for the longest time. And didn't actually realize until I got glasses just how much I was holding myself back by being hmm. stubborn about not wearing them. Once I put them on and took my first drive after having them, it's like, <laughs> whoa, there's a there's a texture on this road. Like, it's not just this this gray <laughs> smear here. So, yeah, it was really a very positive experience for me. Um, as soon as I had those glasses on, like, there was a little bit of adaptation, but I, I just, I had no thought of oh. taking them back off. It's just like, oh. This is obviously much better. This is how the world works. This is
1: an improvement.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is everybody else's normal. Right. (laughs)
1: Yep. It's funny to me thinking about that, like, and wanting to have that, that clarity because my spouse has had vision. That's not great for a long time. Um, almost since she was probably when she was in high school even, but at various times, She's gotten glasses and then just hasn't worn them and just Hmm. accepts that things are going to be fuzzy because it's like, eh, it's fine. But anytime we would go on a hike, she'd be like, I want to see all the pretty leaves up close. So I'm going to wear my glasses.
2: Well, yeah. Like if you're sitting in front of a computer screen, you can just kind of squint and lean in. Mm. But to a a point. Yeah. I guess you could do that with leaves too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, what's funny for me too is like, I again working at a computer screen and finding that things were fuzzy and getting closer and closer and still not being able to see clearly really freaked me out. Which is kind of what what got me to go to the eye doctor at all and got glasses in the first place. Is that like yeah. and and again I think that might have been because of the astigmatism, which is where there's just like a is it a dent or something some some sort of weird misshapenness that just makes makes things not great. Yeah. Instead of a lens there is a dark orb
2: yeah my experience was that um I remember jokingly putting on someone else's glasses when I was <laughs> 20 and being like aha uh, it looks a little bit better but I was like really tired and I was just like that's probably an illusion it's probably like me just thinking like oh yeah putting glasses on things look a little sharper and I always did fine on the the name the letters eye exams hmm I finally got tested again. I guess I was in my early mid thirties and this test actually involved like physically exam, like measuring my eye, ID- my corneal deformity. Oh, wow. And the guy was like, oh yeah. And this was after like doing the reading the letters off the board thing. He was like, oh yeah, you see very well for someone with your prescription. Like, I guess I have like high resolution retinas or something. <laughs> Like I, I can function without the glasses. I can, um, you know, I can read. I can use a computer, although like I can't have my screen at a high resolution and lean back in my chair. Uh. So I, but I wear the glasses because like I, I do like being able to see better, and I think I look better using the look better in them. Uh. And they were never a problem for me. Like I have astigmatism, but I guess not as bad as yours but like my experience putting on my glasses for the first time was that oh i can see it's a little bit sharper now i can see more detail and there was like um a little bit of swimming at the edges edgy, at the, at the edges of my of my vision mm. because the uh, the lenses don't correct linearly or, or whatever the right term <laughs> yeah. for that is and i guess i just learned to ignore it because like when I move my head around and like a, like I'm looking into the corner of my glasses, I do definitely see like the little bit of a bulge and distortion that's still there.
0: Interesting. And
2: I guess I'm just learning to ignore that.
1: My understanding is that glasses are just kind of like that because eyes are not perfectly shaped on anyone Right. and when it comes to doing a a prescription the reason they have you go through that that whole test like does this one look clearer or does this one look clearer is because they're they're trying to just get as close as possible to an approximation of something that's going to make you be able to see better <laughs> and it's really just someone's doing the very best they can but yeah. but it's it's not going to be it's not going to be perfect ever right right um do you know about the um the upside-down
2: glasses? <laughs> yeah. Um, the idea that that they're a pair of glasses that literally like inverts what you see in front of you.
1: Yeah. If you know more about it, then I will happily let you talk more about it. But I heard about this from someone that, that if you wear the upside-down glasses, things will be upside-down. But if you wear them all the time, then at some point your brain... Figures it out, and you can navigate the world perfectly normally.
2: Yeah, yeah. You just correct for it, and then when you take them off, you have to correct for it again. <laughs> like, oh shit! It's this again. And that's yeah. That's that's the extent of what I know about it. That this was a study that was done.
0: So was this something that was theorized or was it actually tested? I believe it was actually tested. Okay.
1: I haven't. I haven't looked into this. I just. I heard. Someone described this to me and it sounded wild, but then I didn't really do enough research to see if they were just pulling my leg. So, I'm glad that someone else has heard of it.
2: Did you ever do the thing where like you put a mirror under your chin and then you walk around and it looks like the popcorn on the ceiling, is looks like the surface of the moon?
1: (laughs) No, but... Guess what I'm doing right after this This call wraps. Yeah, I'm going to have to try this.
2: <laughs> Fantastic. It doesn't look that much like the surface of the moon. You have to be a kid and pretend.
1: <laughs> Still, though.
0: Yeah, so just recently I've been thinking about... Uh, I've been looking into LASIK. Um, mm. Oh, yeah. Ju- just for the... Not because I have a problem with wearing glasses, but every time my prescription gets stronger... Things look a little bit smaller, and <laughs> th- that's getting to the point where it's actually getting kind of bothersome. I do have a funny story about the f- when I first got glasses. Uh, so this this took place uh, at work. There was my, my boss at the time had uh, had a, a digital camera on his desk that he used to take pictures of, of whiteboards after meetings. Um, and I had made some remark uh, about how. Wow, that thing is huge. Like it's it's this big <laughs> chunky camera, just larger than, than I would expect a device like that to be. Uh just this offhand comment. Then after I got the glasses, I was at his desk doing something, and I looked down and was like, whoa, that is a tiny little camera. <laughs> and it was the same camera, of course. He made fun of me to no end after that. That's funny.
1: I that's fascinating too. I didn't I didn't realize that that wearing glasses in that way could affect the size of things and you fish it.
2: Maybe. I mean, I I wonder if this is like uh, a shepherd tone where like you, you notice the difference, but then like, as you get accustomed to it, things grow in your, your mental image of them.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then Hmm. they suddenly
2: shrink again when you get a new, get a new uh, prescription. (laughs) Like if, if there were some way you could apply a tape measure inside your brain (laughs) to make sure they keep getting smaller, I guess the way to do it would be like, uh, to go back and look, ask to look at that camera again right before you're about to uh, get a new pair of glasses.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm just imagining getting increasingly small vision glasses and then walking into the place where you've lived your entire life and the floor seems so far away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that happens to me anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just keep getting taller as well. Yep. I guess it's probably stopped happening by now, but... Yep. Uh,
2: That's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Uh, Alex, if this is something that you want, where could people find you on the internet?
0: Mm -hmm. You can find me on Twitter as themzaltook. And from there, there's a link to my website where you can find me on YouTube and other places.
2: Cool. And John, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet?
1: Sure. My name is John Battenville. And you can find me on the internet on Twitter at Robohunk X.
2: Oh wow! People can finally see your one excellent tweet.
1: Ah, <laughs> oh, sadly, there are so many more tweets related to my promotion of.
2: Oh no! Uh, you you've, you ruined it by tweeting yeah. a bunch of more stuff.
1: I have, but you is know, it, is it
2: pinned? You could pin it.
1: I could pin. I think currently I'm still pinning the link to. Blaze the musical. Fine. But, but who, knows, fine. who knows what's going to happen in the intervening time? Honestly, for those super fans who were in on this from the beginning, I'm sure many people figured it out anyway. So it's all good.
2: All right. Thanks so much for being on.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!